Hey, Ruth. Hey, Rachel. How do we get out of this? That's a really good question. It is actually a really good question. Man, this week we had all kinds of plot lines starting to converge again, and that's what is going to be like full on until the end. Yeah, we got that reveal of what the terrifying thing that they have to overcome at the end of season is going to be. It appears to be Christina, which really makes it all in the family at this point, doesn't it? Yeah, there's so much happening in this episode. Tell me, what did you think about this episode overall? I felt like it really hit a lot of the human drama angles that we've had. I was overall probably most fixated on Dee and her curse. That freaked me out. And of course, that sticks with you throughout the episode. So you're having all these interpersonal things. And Dee, who is a child who has lost her father and literally lost her mother and had her good friend horribly, brutally murdered, is being left to fend for herself for much of this episode. Yeah, this episode had a lot of horror stuff that I do not like, but it also had a lot of things that I wanted to see Mm -hmm. that were either plot advancing and relationships developing that I think kind of toned it down. But those kind of themes in that D plot line were like being followed and dread and seeing things out of the corner of your eye and seeing things that aren't there being followed and seeing things that aren't there are both things that really upset me. Mm -hmm. So I found that upsetting And I was focusing more on maybe the other plot lines as the counter melody in the episode. But so much happened. Like, I don't have a list like normal. Mm -hmm. I was trying to go through in my mind, like, the major things that happened. And I was having a hard time remembering. So there's the plot line with Tick as a newly expectant father, which kind of comes through the whole episode. I was a little surprised in line when he clearly seemed to know that Letty was pregnant. Worrying about her, fussing over her, giving her the extra lemonade. I thought, okay, this man knows. But I also didn't think that she'd have told him off camera. Right. So realizing that he had found out some other way. So then throughout the episode, he is focused on living because he needs to live for his son and for Letty. He ends up in some really, really deep conversations with Montrose about what it means to be family. Montrose made me cry twice in this episode, and I'm pretty upset about that. I'm angry with him for making me feel feelings. I had two really heartfelt points with him, too. I think what he said about family being based on love and how important that is. Do you remember how he put it? Well, he said that familial love is stronger and more true. Mm -hmm. And just like the idea of Tick's mother... And him is just exceptionally heartbreaking that she lost everyone in the race massacre in Tulsa and that he, well, he needed to have a family to cover and to have a family, Mm -hmm. you know, to live a normal life. Just like that idea of even without a romantic love to just be there for someone always and make that kind of commitment like that. 
it's going to make me cry again. <laughs> Talking about yeah. it. It's like, it is. It's a very kind of, it, it's a kind of partnership that mm-hmm. is very rare, I think. In my own family, I don't think I ever saw my parents kiss each other. But I know that they loved each other. I know that they were good friends. And I know that they were committed to taking care of each other. And so even though sometimes my father was kind of a crappy father, he was really dedicated to taking care of my mother when she was dying. There's something about that commitment that is beautiful and it's heartbreaking because you also wonder what else they might have had. But that's the one place where he got me all choked up. And the other was when casting the spell and he realizes he's dyslexic. And I feel like Tick is doing a really good job there of like, he was trying to make up, I felt, for how he'd reacted when he found out that Montrose was gay. And so just like, anything else you're hiding from me? I know. It was very sweet. Even if a relationship wasn't always good, it was like, here's what, you know, the good times were like. And it was very sweet. As a fellow dyslexic, I just want to say, though, should Montrose be the one casting a spell? Yeah, I was like worried. I was like, how, how, <laughs> how is he going to get the words right when he says it? But he does. Yeah. So Letty, her plot arc in this episode is a mirror of Tick's because she's worried about his life too. Yeah, she finds out. That he has found out that he's going to die and she is so not having it. And she's so mad and just like watching her, you know, she's like throwing him out. And then she's like, where are you going? And just, oh. When he walked up to the door, well, the the camera did go a little sideways and there was um, unsettling music. Then there were shoes outside the door, which is how you knew that that Gia was there, which I thought was a wonderful cue. I realized when Letty first stormed into the house and I kind of saw someone sitting there, I said, oh no, that's Gia. The filming of that scene was fantastic when we had the one woman on each side of the screen as Letty is first meeting her. It was just one of those many, many beautiful shots in this episode and in the whole season. And Tick is out meeting with Christina while Gia is telling his whole life story. But I mean, he's got a good reason to meet with Christina, although I particularly appreciated. I had forgotten that the machine was probably anyway broken. And so Montrose is scolding him later for trading that key for information about spellcasting. But it turns out that maybe Christina won't be able to use the machine anyway. This is really an episode of Devil's Bargains with Christina, isn't it? Yeah, and she upholds all of her bargains, which is troubling, I guess, because the Braithwites are are folks who give you something when it benefits them in the end. And and Christina did this in the first episode. Mm -hmm. Well, and she's lawful evil. And that's a very unsettling kind of evil. If we're saying she's evil, but... Well, like, we were talking, I... I just can't stop being pro-Christina. The more we see Christina and William, like, this whole portrayal, I love it so much. (laughs) And it's just from a personal place. And Mm -hmm. it just fills me with so much joy (laughs) that I can't. Do you want to talk about that? Let's talk about the the Christina Ruby plot line. Mm -hmm. And then then when we're done with that, maybe. So at the beginning of the episode, they're all waiting in line for the 
famous open casket wake and is like all of the south side in line and then they lose d and everyone leaves a line except for ruby and ruby is the only one of our heroes who actually you know goes to the wake everyone else leaves and doesn't come back Mm -hmm. so after she's been through that I, I can't imagine how upsetting that experience is to her. She goes to the north side to Christina's house, where she had been living, but like left in the fight. Mm-hmm. And she's having that moment of traumatic grief where like you don't really quite know where you are or how regular things work. Like she's fishing in her pocketbook for the key she's trying to find the key she's trying to figure out how a key works in a lock it's just Mm -hmm. not not quite working for her and and she's in a state of extreme emotional distress and a neighbor saying a black woman try and go to this house is giving her trouble and uh, her white knight william drives up and rescues her and there's like a very i mean how would you describe that i would describe william as almost always a very caring figure. Christina is not caring. She's not gentle. She's brusque. But William is gentle with her. He provides her support, undresses and bathes her, which since it's also been a hot day, even if she'd just been to an ordinary funeral on a hot day, that would have been a kind and loving and supportive thing. He's just washing her in silence. He's very caring with her. They don't talk at all. He's like, you know, the kind of man who's like, I know what you need right now, and I can do that for you. Then she, like, kisses him, but before they have sex, she takes a potion. And they they talk about that later. It was weirdly unsettling for me. It was upsetting to me. You're like, what's happening? And also, no, just like, Ruby tearing herself out of there is is almost a good thing. You're like, oh, thank God we got Ruby back. It made me think, like, how do these potions work? How long do they last? Maybe she took a tiny sip. I guess. Maybe they had a lot of sex. (laughs) Well. Uh, Yeah, it was a little sweet and a little gross afterward when William's kissing her (laughs) because he's got Ruby back. And you're like, oh, dude, she's covered in, like, gore. But also, I support this. Uh." (laughs) And then after that, When Ruby gets dressed and comes downstairs, it's Christina just talking on the phone, also wearing a nice dress. And the thing that I was thinking is that, I mean, we talked about this in the reveal episode where Ruby very much is still like just like putting on a costume. Mm -hmm. But Christina is William. Mm -hmm. It's just like some clothes that she wears. There's no separation between Christina and William. They are at all times, the same person. There's a unity to them. Yeah, they synchronize. <laughs> and so later, Ruby is talking to Letty. And Letty is like, well, tell me more about this man. And Ruby goes, well, some of the time's a man. And my queer heart just exploded in joy. Because I am just super invested <laughs> In seeing somebody be into sometimes a man, like my sometimes boyfriend, who is sometimes a boy. Like, Mm -hmm. I just want to see that so much that it makes me root for them in a way that I know I'm not supposed to. Because Christina is manipulative 
and mm-hmm. it's a kind of messy relationship yeah but i want it to work out and it's because it's a portrayal that i guess i see myself in way i'm not like a manipulative power hungry warlock but <laughs> but the rest of it i see myself in and i like i want good things to happen to a representation of myself of course right yeah. So you're hoping for some kind of redemption story. Yeah, and I also want good things for Ruby. Right, so exactly. I want Ruby to come out of this with more self-knowledge, with more strength. Like, I still feel like she's kind of got a, a trip to go on. Yeah. We saw her start. Mm-hmm. But you can tell in the scene with Letty that, oh, that whole scene was so, like, a rehash of conversations that they surely have had many times before. So Letty tells Ruby that she's pregnant. Yeah. And Ruby is immediately like, why did you get involved with this man? As if, I mean, Tick's not like (laughs) some guy. And then Letty is like, well, what about you? And Ruby is like, it's so great. Christine is going to teach me magic. It's going to be fantastic. And like, just so rosy. We gather that she just like kind of jumps into relationships like this. And that whole time, Letty is just looking at her like. Yeah, Letty's face throughout that whole scene as she's <laughs> shocked, as she's incredulous, as she's trying to figure out what she could say to Ruby. Because Ruby's like, no, I'm actually going to create a world for myself where I fit. And I'm going to do that using magic. And you're like, ooh, I want that for you, but. <laughs> ah! I think like Letty knows there's nothing that she can say that's going to sway her. So she's just like, you mm-hmm. know, you can't trust her. And Ruby's like, yes, I can. That got me worried. I'm like, okay, Ruby, it made me wonder when Christina is trying her ritual, whose side will Ruby be on? Because she doesn't have any particular allegiance to Tick. No, no. So Letty also makes a deal with Christina. Which is where Christina is off to after having sex with Letty's sister. I liked that they once again brought back in that Letty had died and that she's thinking now about life and death and eternity and God and magic and everything sort of in a big package. Yeah, it was so good. Just again, Emmy award winning acting by Journey Smollett all over the place every time she's on screen. And then she's got something of her own to give, which I think is a little bit more valuable than Tick's. It's the negatives that that Christina could use to destroy Tick. Mm-hmm. And she asks for invulnerability for Tick. Mm-hmm. And Christina counters with, uh, I'll give you invulnerability. Which is good. I do support this. When that scene happened, I was like, aw, she cares about the little baby because it's the bloodline. Yeah, that was kind of what I was thinking. I don't think she particularly cares about Letty, but she does care about the baby, which I'm sure she knows about because she's a, you know, evil warlock. And then Christina does one other thing in this episode, which I definitely had this moment where I was like, if this isn't sympathetic magic, I don't know what the point of it is. What was that? That was when she got the two men to beat her shoot her and essentially kill her in the way that Emmett Till had been killed. Mm -hmm. But because she's got invulnerability, she doesn't actually die. 
it mapped directly to something that Ruby had said to her earlier about asking her if she knew what it was like. But the truth is that even if she knew what all those physical sensations were like, she wouldn't know what that that long trauma of this and everything else is like. So it felt a bit like I couldn't tell if it was a white woman act of atonement of attempting to experience pain because of guilt that she's keeping secret from Ruby, or if it was because she wants to summon some sort of sympathetic magic thing related to it, which if she's going to use it for vengeance, then 100% support. But I, I felt very unsure of what was going on. Yeah, I don't know what she was up to. And her and Ruby had had this whole conversation of, there's no way you can know what my life is like and how I feel. And so there's mm -hmm. part of you that thinks that this is about trying to understand that. But at the same time, it's some complete bullshit. Right. Right? It's like, this does not even begin to get at what Ruby's life is like. And Christina would never, I don't think that she would ever choose to experience that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes me think of the various ways in which people have done you know, I wore a hijab for a week and here's what I learned or black like me mm. kind of pieces where they may experience some fraction of the thing, but you can't take on the whole consciousness, the whole history, the whole lifetime of experience a thing just by doing an experiment. Right. The experience, like Montrose trying to talk to D, but there's... Mm. he's trying to explain like that it's horrible, but everyone's got to go through it, which is not a good pep talk. I know. I felt so bad that he was the only one who was really hanging on to D or at least trying. Uh, and he's even, and he's trying to give her a pep talk and he's really, he's trying to do the family thing. Yeah. He's, I mean, that is his best. Like, I know what you're going through, but it doesn't get any better. I know. Oh, that's, God, that's so hard because he he's really trying to be family to her in that moment. He, he is. Uh, oh, here's the other thing. Um, there was a lot of spell casting in this episode. There was. And there, so we heard a lot of like the language of Adam. Mm -hmm. Do you have any thoughts about the language of Adam as portrayed in this show? Honestly, I don't have that many thoughts about the language of Adam because I couldn't figure out what exactly it was supposed to be like it would be really interesting to hear you know from the creators if this is like a whole complete fake language or it sounded to me like a kind of a mix between aramaic and like greek i'm trying to think i want to say i thought of like indiana jones and such but i can't tell if that was psychological right or if that was sound based yeah so they're all trying to be like speaking linear b or something but tell me this lovecraft wise What's the deal with uh, fake languages and Lovecraft or ancient unknowable languages in Lovecraft? Is that a thing? Yeah. So you get two different kinds of Lovecraftian language things. You get things like, oh yeah, this is from the ancient Sumerian, or this is from some older dialect kind of thing where the idea is it's a historical language. And then you get things that are somehow rooted in words that we can't even that the human mouth really wasn't meant to pronounce and that are meant to sound like they come from other kind of mouths so 
how do you say Fatagan? You have things like that and you have symbols, but Lovecraft is as much, I think, into the historical concepts around languages. So he doesn't have a language of Adam, but he might totally write a story in which somebody's speaking Sumerian in a Celtic situation or context, or someone speaking Celtic in a modern context, or Sumerian in a modern context. I would say he likes languages, but he doesn't know enough about them to know what to do with them. Not like Tolkien, mm-hmm. where it's a complete construct. It just seems like fake and made up mm-hmm. in a way that Tolkien's Elfish is not. He like created an entire language to then write really long, boring poetry in. Yeah, maybe my standards are Tolkien and of course Klingon too. That's a cool example of a co-created language where it's uh, as much a fan construct and kind of back and forth going on. While we shouted out Chris Spivey's work in one of our earliest media breaks, I want to talk about the Harlem Unbound RPG setting again in light of this week's episode. Like our protagonists, you may cast dangerous spells, carry curses, and fight monsters who just happen to be the police. You'd be lucky to get a Lovecraftian monster on your side like Tick, and by lucky I mean it would come with some dangerous consequences, for sure. The first edition of Harlem Unbound, sold out in print and available as PDF, supports the Call of Cthulhu and Trail of Cthulhu systems. The second, available now in PDF and for pre-order, supports Call of Cthulhu 7th edition and includes four new scenarios. You can check out an actual play of Harlem Hellfighters Never Die linked in our show notes. Much like this show, it's a beautiful game and it pulls no punches. Let's talk about D. I found D's whole plot line very, very unsettling. I don't know what unsettled me more, though, that she was so very alone, even when she was among crowds of people, even when she was around the people that were supposed to care about her and take care of her, or those two terrifying twins who are called in the credits Topsy and Bopsy, who are actually adult dancers, which explains why they were so good at being so terrifying and she basically is going on her parallel journey which is very much like us but visible only to her and she is also from the moment we see her she's having that grief moment it it was very much like the shot of bloody at george's funeral where she's just Mm -hmm. completely blank and she's in a space where like she doesn't quite know what's going on around her. There's the shot of the crowd kind of moving around her and she's just standing still. They use some really good filming techniques to to emphasize her separateness and her the ways in which she's experiencing the world in a distorted way. Yeah. Not because she's not experiencing the world, but because she is so fully in her grief and her fear and her sense of loss. I mean, she doesn't even have her mother to comfort her right now, which is more tragic and more awful than I could have imagined it when we figured out who Bobo was. Yeah. 
So as she's kind of wandering around the streets when everyone is at the wake, the lawmen come up to her because they know who she is because of the comic. Mm-hmm. And uh, the police captain curses her. I liked this part where he cursed her because his magic is ugly, mm-hmm. like him, which I enjoyed because I like trueness to character. There's like bugs coming out of the ground. It is just disgusting, like he is. And that was probably. Of all the scenes and the whole thing, that was the one that freaked me out the most. You know, despite this horrible curse pair following her, when she's alone in the alley with these two men who want to hurt her, and then when one of them is choking her. Oh my god. That was... And then he does something to her, but you don't know what it is. That's terrifying. That impending doom. Mm Mm-hmm. And you learn that she not only doesn't know what it is, but she can't speak it. And so she spends a lot of the episode, once she meets these girls, running from them, running away from them, trying to get free. Because the curse happens when they catch her. You know, it was even more awful when when she gets to the house and Letty is just walking off. And I get it. I understand. Everybody's having a rough episode. Everyone's like completely in their shit and they just end up ignoring her. But if Letty had taken her inside and gotten her a drink and some cookies or something, the house is warded and I wonder if that could have kept her safe. And not only is she not kept safe, but when she's running away from them, she finds the car. She's known that they were lying to her, but now she really knows that they're lying to her. And I feel like that was a... It wasn't really explored, but that was such a moment of betrayal. One of the other things that's kind of like a development of her is after she's been being chased for a a while, she goes back just right up into the captain's stinky office. He's still got that guy in the closet, apparently. And she just is like, what the hell did you do to me? First, she's like, is my mama dead? Which is actually a good question because he might know and he doesn't know. Which, you know, he says probably, but it makes me think, okay, at least maybe of all the people in the episode, he has given her the straightest answer. He doesn't know. Yeah. And he doesn't care about her enough not to tell her the truth. Right. And then she's like, what do you do? And he kind of tells her straight up that too. And then he like offers her to lift the curse in, in exchange for something. And I thought she might do it, right? Like I, I thought, thought she, she might, might do it too. go get the orrery. But then he just curses him. And she also decides she's going to take it into her own hands. So she goes to her own ground and she sets things up by locking some doors and leaving others unlocked so she knows where they could come in. She arms herself and then she starts drawing, which I feel like is a way of either summoning them or taking control over them. Mm-hmm. Like you said, there's a lot of spellcasting in this episode. Yeah. And I think that Dee's drawing is also a kind of spellcasting. I agree completely. I'm sure we will see more of this next week, but Montrose tries his best and makes it worse oh, again. Poor Montrose. Because he can't see them, so she's fighting them off. And if she had been able to fight them off for a little while longer, they might have died with their creator. Yes, good point. But Montrose holds her still, and then they're able to get to her. But Montrose can't see them, so he doesn't quite know what's going on. No, suddenly she's just spouting blood, which with her 
white dress. Yeah. It's so vivid. Oh, and the way that their their arms were bloody and the extending nails. Oh, everything about them was exceedingly gross and creepy. And they did, you know, 360 pans and other stuff that I hate. Mm-hmm. Like there's there's something behind you. I hate all oh. of that stuff. And the musical cue itself was extremely upsetting. Oh, I hated it. I hated it. Let me I did in. not like it at all. The moment where they were dancing up behind her in the alley just just chills. Now I have seen us, and I think that that helped me prepare for it a little bit because once I said, okay, this is going to be freaky like that. And that's a very freaky movie. I was a little bit better able to deal with it. But in the end, I don't know if the curse is that they have infected her somehow now or what it is. But we see that next week she's going to be in a very vulnerable situation. It looks like Christina might be the only one to save her. Yeah, it's definitely some kind of death curse from what police captain said. Yeah, that she's already dead. But so is he, sucker! One more thing about Topsy and Bobsy. Mm-hmm. What did you think about their portrayal as being racist caricatures? I appreciated that it was maybe another way that the showrunners are showing that Dee is being haunted by ideas of what she should be. So she's this little girl who has a vision about going to space, which is something that nobody's done. And they're certainly not lining up women to do it. And they're certainly not lining up black people. And they're definitely not lining up black women to do it. And so she is dreaming about space but she's being chased and hunted down by white people's vision of her which is this curse and i don't know if the police captain created the curse intentionally it didn't sound like he knew exactly what it was but instead she's being chased down by this literary representation that had become very popular and of course it's based on a broader caricature about black children who were enslaved. And so it's seeking her to destroy her before she can get out. And I felt like while disturbing on every level and including on the level of having them be racist caricatures, it fit well with the tone of what Dee's plot is or what her, her life is dealing with. Mm-hmm. I felt like it was a good choice. And as I understand it in the book, it's something different because it's a, it's a boy and everything. And this seemed to me to be a very well-suited choice to describe the greatest kind of evil that could haunt her, which is the evil of white people's imagination about her. Yeah. Yeah. Well, meanwhile, the cops decide to turn their attention elsewhere that scene was ups and downs and ups for me. I don't know how you felt watching it, but I thought it was so funny when the police captain bounced off the door and how shocked everybody was. Yeah, so he's like, well, let's go take care of this winter house situation, right? We got to get our house back. He's trying There's to so many he's trying them. to find a way to to like get in control of the lodge cuz he's under this threat. So it's like this dual threat of Christina mm-hmm. and the police captain. And so he goes to kind of like confront Letty and he brings the whole squad and he says, hey, we got a warrant. And then he tries to walk in, but he bounces off the magic door. And I don't know who's more freaked out, him or like Letty. (laughs) 
And it's great that, that Ruby is already in on the magic because it's all like, oh shit, he knows magic. But you know what doesn't know magic? Bullets. Yeah. And so they proceed to shoot up this house. And we see this is legit a Wonder Woman moment when you see mm-hmm. Letty's invulnerability and the bullets just kind of like glancing off of her. Yeah, that moment when Letty realizes, wait a second, why am I down on the floor? I'm invulnerable. And she doesn't know it yet. She hasn't actually tested it yet. But she's also so sure. Yeah. Ah, when that first bullet bounced off of her. Ah, it was a good time. That was was pretty good. I'm worried about, you know, the rest of the house. Um, Mm, Yeah, I think everybody else was, like, down on the floor and should be okay. I'm worried about the house. Like... You know, they want to live there. It's oh, the structural bullets. integrity of being, you know, barraged by shotgun blasts and whatnot. But then Tick is kind of on his way back to the house. And I appreciated that when he first hears it and starts running and such, you see him reacting. And it's like he is both very much afraid for the people he loves, but he's also definitely having a kind of flashback moment, it seems. And they pop out his dog tags. Mm-hmm. I felt like that sort of symbolized it, that he is back on the battlefield, except that he's in Chicago. Yeah, because they turn their attention full on him, all the guns pointed at him. And then Letty realizes that they're going to shoot him for coming up on them, and she just starts running. You know, you see the gun flash, and she starts running. And we know that Letty's fast. She's extremely fast. She's she's not faster than a bullet. But thankfully, Tick's protection spell won. And here comes to protect him. Your favorite monster. <laughs> you're, you're somehow like never skips leg day, but blobby, many eyed monster. You're, you're fast, Jogoth, right? Yeah, it's your Braithwaite special. <laughs> Who proceeds to then gore all of the police officers in a way that was just hilariously excessive. It was so over the top and it was such good relief after the episode and the stress and everything else. And you're just like, oh my God, that guy goes flying by and they're hiding behind a car and a dead person pops out. Talon comes through him. I'm going to eat him. I'm going to throw him over. And just like guy goes flying over the whole house. Right. Like Letty's spell is invulnerability, Mm -hmm. which makes her invulnerable. Tick casted a a protection spell. They didn't quite know what that means. Now (laughs) we do. He is protected by a monster who will kill people for him. It's head against his hand. The monster loves him. The monster's here for him. It's his monster. Okay, there is one real unanswered question here, though, which is, what the fuck are they going to do about this situation? Oh, like what happened to the police officers? This isn't Buffy. Even in Buffy, only the vampires disappear when they're dead. And so it's like, okay, great. Like, can the monster eat them? What's the cover story? Yeah, like you have a street with maybe 30 dead police in it and five or six cars. Well, one's in the lawn now. And you're just like, oh, this is really funny. And this is really great. And I'm so glad that they're protected. 
Uh, guys, do, 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 do we have a cleanup plan? This is a white neighborhood. I mean, granted, maybe that helps because maybe the neighbors will have seen it and stuff. But what the fuck? So there goes our dual threat because the policeman done for. Yeah, so now Christina's the only one left. So this benefited her as well. So so what's the funniest part to you? The um, cops being murdered by the monster? That or, or Montrose is being dyslexic, yeah. Which there, that was like a heartwarming funny. But yeah, I think I probably laughed more when the monster showed up. And I was like, oh, it's the cop-eating monster. Yeah. I just had this moment where that was the first thought that went to my head. Yeah. And the second thought was, okay, Rachel's like three minutes behind me watching this. Oh, I can't wait till this text starts coming in. I was like, oh, yeah. And then that scene went on for so long. That made it, it was so, so much funnier. What was the, the creepiest? I would say the creepiest was when Diana was being stalked by those two girls. And probably of those, the creepiest was when she was waiting to chase the police car down and they were in the alley behind her. Oh, that's so dark, and it's something behind you, and you can't see it, but you know they're coming. That suspense was unappreciated. I was uh, disassociating um, for all of those um, scenes. Like I said, not my not my jam. So I think for my creepiest, it's got to be the sex scene with Ruby and the oh god skin shedding. Ugh. That was the grossest for sure. So weird. So weird. But as you were saying, William's into it. <laughs> Bless. Yeah, so what about, when were you the most scared, scared throughout it? All those scenes where Dee was like, to the guy at the train stop, do you see that? Oh. And um, to Letty, there's, Letty, there's something behind you. And, oh, God. Yeah, I think the two points where I was the most really scared was, first, when they had her in the alley, and especially when the one started to choke her. And then second, at the very end, when Montrose was restraining her. Oh, and I was like, oh, God, no, they're going to get her. They're going to get her. Like, all of that pent up. I felt so bad. And at first, I thought that because in the story is happening at the same time as the cops, I thought that they wouldn't get her because the policeman was being killed. But we learned that in the preview for next week that she was indeed got. Yeah, and I th- like I think Ruby is more loyal to Christina and William than to Tick. And I think if you throw in a side of D needing help, you know, she's going to do whatever it takes. Like if Christina said, kill Tick and I'll save D, Ruby would do it. Obviously, that's not how sacrifices quite work, but... I can't even imagine like what that trade-off is going to be. It's going to be a shock to me mm-hmm. if it's something that Ruby has to decide. I feel like it's more in... To Letty. Mm-hmm. So two more episodes of God knows what. Two more episodes. You talked me into making a podcast about this. <laughs> How do you feel? I'm sorry. <laughs> well, I've enjoyed watching it with you. And I enjoy those moments where I'm like several scenes ahead. And I enjoy those moments where I can message you and say, oh, no, it only gets worse. <laughs> Yeah, my entire running commentary on this episode was, oh no. (laughs) Every single thing that happened made me think, oh no. Yeah. 
So pull it together. Maybe in two weeks we can have some sort of cathartic, therapeutic moment at the end of it all where things have hurt, but maybe they're getting better. I thought you were going to say, in my defense, nature struck first. Man, uh, it's dangerous out there. The vines do fight back. <laughs>